Hello and welcome to the Hybrid Coaching Podcast. Today we are joined by Paralympic swimmer Kate Gray, who represented Team GB for 10 years. Um, hi, Kate. Hello. Yes. Hi. Thanks for having me on. You are very, very welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, so we usually get this podcast started with a fact of the day, which we believe you've been told to prepare. So what have you got? <laughs> I have prepared, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. What have you got for us? I mean, it's slightly weird and a bit random. but um, So during your lifetime, you will produce enough, enough saliva to fill two swimming pools. Olympic swimming pools? Uh, well, that was going to be my that's, question. That's where it might slightly get thrown off. Now you've caught me off guard here. I really don't know. My fact site didn't tell me that. It says an average human produces between one to two liters of saliva each day, which is a maximum of seven hundred and thirty liters a year. That's a yeah. lot of saliva, isn't it? I mean, I don't one, know. One, one time, um, so we, I was I was with uh, Connor, who's going to be competing with us at NFG on Saturday. And we were doing just random questions. Obviously, you don't know Connor, but this is still by the by. And uh, oh, one yeah. question was, how much um, saliva do you think you produce in, in Olympic swimming pools per year, no, per, in your lifetime? Oh. And so we worked out by assuming that you produce like te- five to sort of 10 milliliters of saliva per every sort of 10 seconds. <laughs> like I mean, it's okay. quite horrible when you think about that because mm. obviously spending many years as a swimmer, yeah. I was always aware of that you're sweating all the time in the pool. You're very often swimming behind people that are probably can't be bothered to go to the toilet yeah. and are therefore doing it in front of you. Oh, and, you probably yeah. spend a lot more time in contact with other people's bodily fluids than almost any other human, haven't you? Yeah, it's wonder. My skin hasn't just decided to completely disintegrate or you know fall apart. Really, I definitely enjoy not being a swimmer anymore and just having like not dry skin and not yeah. itchy things everywhere and hair falling out. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't miss that side of it. Have you got <laughs> an awful. excellent immune system now, though, from being exposed to all those like pathogens? Well, I, you you would think so, but actually, towards the end of my career, I think I actually caught every bug going. But I think there was an element of a burnout and. Uh, probably just not really listening to my body when I was knackered. So I think I have caught every bug going, um, but I don't think my immune system is anywhere near as strong as it used to be because I think I might have just pushed it to a point of too far. I got glandular fever at the back end of my career, which I'm sure will probably come on to anyway. Um, and therefore that, that was an element of sort of training and burnout and pushing myself. So um, yeah, I think I was probably pretty good and immunized to it all until I decided to just completely corrupt my whole immune system with a uh, fatigue and, just sort of like overtraining. Oh, sounds nasty. Mm. Yeah, they usually say it's like the student um, illness that you get, which is from partying too hard. Oh, but that flu. wasn't my case. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, glandular fever is when I find out about. Uh, at uni was when I first heard about glandular fever. Yeah. Did you have glandular? No, oh, right. I didn't have it. <laughs> <laughs> they also call it like Ali, a Ali, things Ali, like Ali, this Ali, well, which is how you catch when you pass saliva. So it all comes round in roundabouts, doesn't it? Maybe that's what it might have been in the first place. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's called the kissing disease, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Um, right then, Kate. Could oh. you? Oh no, just before. Oh, no, no. Just okay. just before you tell us about your background, uh-huh. can you just tell us what your favourite assembly hymn is? And sing a little bit of it for us, please. Um, um, I mean, I'm not sure if it's officially classed as a hymn, oh, that's but okay. it was. Um, it was like a, a school song, and it was like cauliflowers fluffy and cabbages green. 
strawberries are sweeter than ever I've seen. <laughs> it was like a, a song all about like really good food um, and what's good for you. I think it's just listing off all the vegetables. That sounds like what, what was the other one? Uh, oh, I could do this all day. This is right up my street, this kind of question, but um, I won't. I'll leave it oh, with the well, What we'll do, we'll save this for if ever like we get one of those awkward silences while we're recording and then yeah. we'll just like cut back so if you could write down a couple of them just to like go back to yeah. um, and if ever we forget to ask you a question or just have an awkward silence if you just start singing yeah, yeah. I mean the other one he's got the whole world in, in his, his hands, hands he's got yeah. the whole world, world. It is hands. See, you just wanted me to sing a song that you could all join in. Now you're all googling cauliflowers fluffy. I think we might, um, we might insert a few awkward silences on purpose now, just to test you out. (laughs) Oh gosh, I haven't heard that song. To be fair, imagine having the whole world in your hands. I know some some people are greedy, aren't they? Mm, Bigger than yours. Yeah. (laughs) Um. Right then, well, now that we've covered all the important stuff, um, <laughs> people can stop listening now if they really want to. <laughs> all the main stuff's out of the way. But um, if you could tell us a little bit about your background and sort of how you got into swimming and stuff. Yeah, so, uh, well, um, as you said, I was competing for Great Britain for 10 years. Um, but I first got into swimming when I was like four or five years old. I think like most kids learn to swim, it's a bit of a compulsory thing to do as a child. Um, and having a disability, so I should probably track back even more, a few, uh, even more of more years, because I actually lost my left hand when I was two years old, um, and I, I put it into a sausage machine uh, oh, when I was yeah. two years old. <laughs> um, and uh, just to explain what on earth I was doing with a sausage machine at two years old, I live on a farm, and I was a really naughty two-year-old. When your parents say, "Don't mess with that, you'll hurt yourself," I go and do it anyway, and as a result, I chop my own hand off. And uh, yeah, everything kind of changed from there. But for me, sport was always like the tool to help me challenge myself. And being physically disabled, people assumed you couldn't do things. And therefore, I used sport and physical activity as a way to prove that I could. um, And sort of really loved that challenge. And so I was always taking part in every club and activity going at school. But swimming was the one sport I couldn't really teach myself. Like, I could teach myself how to catch with one hand. I could teach myself to skip and climb and hold a hockey stick and things like that. But when it came to swimming, I was just awful at it. I pretty much just swam around in circles, a bit like a rowing boat with one paddle. So um, I'm like a left-hand amputee below the elbow, and I've got like a little stump, but it doesn't really have much pull through the water. Um, So it wasn't very useful at swimming. Uh, And I pretty much decided I didn't really want to be a swimmer as a child. I thought it was a rubbish sport and that, you know, I'll have plenty of other fun things to do in my life. Um, but obviously not having a great track record when it comes to accidents. Um, my, my parents kept taking me back to the pool and um, I gradually had to like learn over time. I had like one-to-one lessons and was quite slow to, to get to grips with it. Um, but eventually got the hang, hang of it. And uh, yeah, by about 10 years old, I think I was introduced to my first ever disabled competition, which was all a bit strange because... Up until that point, I'd never really met anybody else with a disability like me. Um, didn't really know other people like me were 
were out there and the Paralympics certainly weren't on the TV at that point. So um, to go along to my first ever disabled competition was was quite an eye-opener. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever watched Paralympics, but there's lots of arms and legs everywhere, uh, wheelchairs, people are blind, under 40, so it's a completely different experience to what you know you're probably used to. One vision I do recall when I walked in on the poolside was there's this young lad with no arms and no legs and his dad was pushing him around in a wheelchair and to get him into the swimming pool he literally dumped him in to the pool like a wheelbarrow onto a muck heap. <laughs> it was hilarious to watch and it completely just sort of made me realise like, look everybody here <laughs> has yeah. got their own experiences yeah. and you know we're all just doing it in our way. So uh, yeah that was my first experience in swimming. Um, a disability level and uh, I was all right and uh, kind of just kept training and improving and working my way through the club system and then I got more involved in sort of national competitions for disabled people and when I was 13 I got selected to be a part of the British Swimming Programme um, and that's where sort of my 10 years competing for my country started so that's it quite quite condensed and in a nutshell. <laughs> that is quite a story. Wow. Which bit threw you off the most, the sausage machine or the dumping someone into a pool with a wheelbarrow? I was expecting something worse when you said you lived on a farm and you were a really naughty two-year-old. I thought <laughs> the sausage machine was a punishment <laughs> for, for you being naughty, not just like you were naughty and had an accident. Um, yeah. So I'm really Go quite relieved that that was, just a, that was a misunderstanding on my part. <laughs> <laughs> what was it um, in that first... Uh, like your first introduction to disabled sport or just disabled swimming. Yeah. Obviously on like a Paralympic level, there's so many athletes that the grouping of each athlete is pretty much very, very fair. So you've got like the different levels of um, of what disability competes against which disability. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, classification. Um, yes, yeah, that's what it's called. So, yeah. um, so in like um, your uh, regional um, uh, swimming events or, or like even national swimming events yeah what's the um it are does it feel that there's um less athletes competing and thus the the level of fairness is a little bit um out of whack or or, or is that yeah I, yeah and i totally get your point because um like for, for example i didn't even realize there were other people out there like me that's how exposed i was to disability and they're just you, there's just not that many of them around really um and so when i went on this competition i was actually in a race with a couple of people with one leg a couple of people with one hand a couple of people that were fully bodied but had cerebral palsy mm -hmm. and they said it's categorized to be as fair as possible i mean i'm not going to go down the route of discussing classification with you right now because that all gets a little bit confusing and very stressful but um it, it, it's grouped as, as fairly as it can be. Um, and, yeah, I, I was just very sort of pleased to be swimming against people who were a similar ability to me. Um, and more importantly, I just liked hanging out with people that had the same experiences to me. But when I got to sort of national competitions, um, you do realise that you've got to a national standard a lot quicker than your peers who are able-bodied in your swimming club uh, because they have got way more people to compete against. They've got much more to sort of get through before they can class themselves as a national swimmer whereas I'd sort of gone from being once a week at my local swimming club did quite well at my first disability competition people started saying oh you know you should do more training you could be a Paralympian and I was a bit like oh okay I'll go a couple more times a week and obviously I was at the age where I was improving quite quickly anyway um and like before I knew it I was competing at nationals um and competing against sort of the best in the country um so I always think the progression from sort of 
just an average club swimmer to a national international swimmer as a disabled person is much quicker. However, once you do then get to the top of the game and you are against the cream of the crop, the competition is no different to the competition that you would face in an able-bodied setup because all of them are still doing the same amount of training as you. All of them have got the same fight and want to compete for their country and win medals. So I think the progression is quicker, but the competition is just as fierce at the very top level. And in some ways, not that I'm sort of like the poor disabled people, they get it hard, but we've had to fight to get where we want to get to because for example clubs aren't always the most welcoming of disabled people to begin with you say you want to become a Paralympic swimmer and they kind of go really because this was sort of 20 odd years ago now when disabled sport Paralympic sport wasn't on the telly so for you to then go to a local swimming club and say I want to become a Paralympic swimmer they're like well how are you going to do that then and a lot of the time coaches don't have confidence to work with you because they don't know how to teach you. They don't know how if you can train in the same way that an able-bodied person can train. Yeah. So a lot of time, you're coaching your coach to coach you. Uh, and that even say, when what, I went to university, at what point did you first get coached by someone who, like, specifically coached you as a disabled athlete, as opposed to um, someone well, who so I was just about to say. So when I went to university, um, I was sort of directed that I could go to Manchester or Swansea which is where all of the disability hub um, British hubs were so that's where there was already a setup of coaches that were willing to work with disabled people but they didn't have the courses I wanted and I said I wanted to go to Bath um, the University of Bath and I went there and the coach was like well what do I have to do what do I do with you you know how do you train I've got an elite Olympic squad here you're clearly a lot slower than them how are you going to fit in? And I said, right, give me two weeks. So I went sort of two weeks before the start of uni. And I said, give me two weeks for me to prove myself. And a lot of this will just be a back and forth conversation. And um, interestingly, he was probably the most uninspired coach to work with me. But then once he worked with me, he was then the most inspiring coach to work with because he would have 15 athletes in a squad and he would write 15 sessions because he actually treated athletes differently. Every athlete was different. He didn't do what a lot of swimming clubs do, which is, right, I've got 10 athletes all in a group here, and we're all going to do the same session, even though you're training for this, you're training for that, you're tapering next week, you've got a weight session tomorrow. Like Everyone still did the same thing, whereas this coach was actually very um, enthusiastic about everyone doing something differently and more than happy to facilitate that. Well, that's really interesting. So um, <clears throat> before you got to work with that particular coach, mm-hmm. was all your training really generic before that? Yeah, and I think that sort of fitted in with the fact that when you're in age group, uh, so when you're a swimmer sort of getting older <laughs> in your sort of teenage years, you're growing anyway, so you're you're getting faster and faster just by the fact that you're growing. Mm-hmm. Um, and also club environments they don't have the space, the time for you all to be doing a different session. And very often I'd be in a group with 10 other athletes. But what I would do is I would swim with athletes that were maybe five years younger than me. Um, So my speed would be the same speed as them. Um, And we'd sort of do similar sets, but a lot of the time it was just about going at the right speed and the right pace. So each week would be like a training block of some sort. And you you need to make sure that you're working to the right training block and the right training level for you so if I try to swim with my own age group they're much faster than me and therefore I'd be overtraining all the time uh, whereas I just went down a few age groups still had the same quality of training but had to kind of train with younger people which 
is good in some respect. But when I got to university and was training alongside other Olympic athletes that are all the same age as me, um, you kind of were on a similar mindset and a similar attitude to training. And also my training went from sort of every day, one or two, twice a day to suddenly every day, twice a day, gym, nutritionist, psychologist, physio, like everything was set up to be focused around the elite athlete and what they needed. You mentioned earlier that you, you kind of picked most stuff up relatively quickly, but swimming took a little bit longer. Did, did you enjoy swimming to start with or was it just because your parents kept taking you and you kept doing it and you started to improve that? Yeah, absolutely. I I hated it. I wouldn't, if I didn't have parents that were very much like, no, you need to learn to swim. This is an important skill to have. I probably would have just said no, because I think I was a bit of a nightmare. I cried every time I got there, screamed the house down, like did not want to get in. But they were just quite encouraging, supportive, slash slightly blackmailing the fact that if I couldn't learn to swim, I probably wouldn't be able to go on holiday or whatever. So, you know, I had to like buy into that. Um, So if they hadn't probably encouraged me and supported me in that way, I may, like many people, if they've had a negative experience in swimming, which I hear a lot of, particularly of older generation, one bad experience and people don't go near a pool again. And to learn to swim, you know, when you're later on in life is so hard because you're completely haunted by all your fears. Um, And I think that's when you're a child, you kind of get over it quite quickly. And I'm glad that I sort of faced those fears. I think for me, the frustration was that I wasn't progressing as fast as my friends. And I've always been really competitive. So when I see other people getting better than me and going faster than me, I'm a bit like, well, why aren't I? What's wrong? And the frustration almost played against me a lot of the time. And that's why having one-to-one lessons just completely took me away from the competitive element and made me realize actually you're never going to be as fast as your friends because they have two paddles you have one paddle and therefore it's about the enjoyment and just you being the best version of yourself thick cliche but you know it's I had to suddenly come to terms with the fact that having a disability there were times I was going to have to expect people to be faster than me yeah 100% I think that's sort of it, it like with anything if you don't feel competent with something straight away it's yeah. really easy just to disregard it, isn't it? Because obviously we, like, we need to feel at least a little bit competent to actually be motivated to want to try and do more. Yeah, um, and there's so many other options out there. And I think this was my problem is that I was like, oh, well, I'm going to go and do this or I'll do that or play tennis or go running or join the athletics club. Or, you know, there was n- enough other things going on. I thought, why do I need to worry about swimming? But I do believe that swimming is the one sport you can do from the day you're born to the day you die because... Yeah. You know, there's no impact whatsoever. I would be training at six o'clock in the morning and there'd be an 80-year-old fella next to me who does it every morning just as a bit of a routine. And because it kept him fit, it kept him mobile, it's the sport that every other sport has to go to when they're injured. So at the University of Bath, I'd very often see the whole of the Bath rugby squad with sort of like inflatable devices around them doing sort of aqua jogging to kind of reduce the impact that they've got from the crazy tackles and running they've been doing on the pitch so it is a really really inclusive sport but it's also one of the hardest to feel comfortable in because if you haven't had a positive experience as a child it's just an uphill battle yeah when we were on the um hybrid holiday in slovenia i did see some pictures yeah uh, who recommended we do the podcast with you thought it highly amusing that um the three of us were not the best swimmers. She, oh, she was not God, very guys, I hope you're not life. like soft now and thinking, yeah, I'm definitely not going to go swimming now. Sounds like too much hard work. <laughs> Did you think, so are you able, can you do a length? 
Can you do the stroke? Yeah, we can, so do, we can do a lap. Don't enjoy it. But uh, we swam out about twenty meters and then doggy paddled or tre- treaded water. That's the term. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Treading water is the hardest. Part. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I was there for about thirty seconds and then swam back to the to the edge, and my heart rate went to about one forty. Which yeah. is way too high for, for that amount of activity. <laughs> you can yeah. burn a lot of energy, particularly I think the guys get it worse than the girls because what I've learned over my years as a swimmer and having lots of fluctuating weight phases just for different reasons is that I used to live with guy swimmers who could literally eat, as you would have heard Michael Phelps eat, 12,000 calories a day. And that's because they're so muscular and dense that as soon as they get in the pool, they sink because they're so like, weighted down with muscle whereas women have got a few more flotation devices which we're very thankful for um, and therefore we don't burn anywhere near as much calories and we don't spend anywhere near as much energy when we're sort of just keeping ourselves afloat whereas for a guy to just tread water that's actually hard work for them particularly if they're very muscular and yeah I used to live with lads and they had like ridiculous diets just about getting calories on board it was never about it being healthy it was just calories because yeah. they had barely any skin fold whatsoever yeah, treading water is very, very tough. Yeah. <laughs> we might have to. Uh, so you stressed in the middle of a pool. Just, to teach it's us. too hard. Yeah, yeah. But, to be fair, I'd quite like to do swimming lessons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would be great. To be fair. Oh, it's never too late, and definitely as you get older, I think you'll appreciate being able to give your body a bit of a break from impact training. Definitely, you might have to enlist you for some help. I'm sure Steph will help you. Uh, I'd like to be able to surprise Steph. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want to tell him to go look at me? Steph's a very good teacher. I learned a lot from Steph. She did actually volunteer to teach me. Yeah. Um, oh, that's good. While we're speaking about Steph, actually, we should give her a massive, unbelievably uh, yeah. enormous shout out for doing for swimming so far. So yeah, quick. Windermere, wasn't it? Yeah. Did she swim across? Was it like eleven miles? Eleven yeah. miles. I thought yeah. it was going to be like two or three or something which is still a ridiculous and then she did it and it was 11 yeah. i couldn't believe that i was watching her like get out and i was thinking flipping neck how far she swam and then i looked it up and i was like wow that is i mean i'm i'm a fair weather swimmer like i will swim in nice lame rope swimming pools maybe a nice flat lake but you know to swim in the middle of a windermere or you know outside swimming is a whole another level so huge admiration for anybody that does open water swimming or as Steph just seems to do for fun you know just swim 11 miles with no real worries for five and a half hours on but have you seen the video Ali of Steph getting out of Windermere when she falls over she like falls over like two or three times yeah Yeah. and wasn't she that first woman as well yeah Yeah. first woman woman. it's insane amazing yeah she's 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 awesome she is very awesome well done Steph well done Steph well done Steph um so you hated swimming but then yeah. you learned to like swimming got quite good at swimming and then you went to the paralympics <laughs> oh it sounds so easy doesn't it so yeah the big change was sort of while i was still in my club environment before i went to university we it was announced that like london was going to host the 2012 paralympic and olympic games and i think if you were an athlete sort of in that elite training environment around that time. That is like the biggest boost because you're like, what the biggest sporting event in the whole world is going to be hosted here on home turf. And I could potentially be an athlete there. So that was 2005. That was like a real, okay, everything I do is got to be about my swimming. Every decision I make is got to be about my swimming. And that's why I opted to go to university of Bath where 
I've got the best facilities to train in and I've also got my studies there as well. Um, and I'd sort of already shown promise and signs like I'd competed at world championships and was on that trajectory. So going to university just gave me that that push. So I was in uh, training alongside other elite athletes, um, accessing lots of brilliant, you know, strength and conditioning, um, physios and all of that to make sure I was fully prepared. And actually within six months of, of being at the University of Bath, I, I qualified for the Beijing Paralympics. And I think that wasn't really what I planned for. I was always London. Like I sort of thought, no, it'll be too soon for me. Like I'm, I'm not quite ready that yet, but I managed to make some pretty big leaps in the first few months of being at Bath and then qualified and then yeah got got to race in Beijing which was pretty awesome everyone says London 2012 was you know an amazing games but you know competing in Beijing in front of like 15,000 people considering the most I'd ever competed in front of was like my mum and dad and someone else's mum and dad like that was an awesome experience and they did put on a really great event for the Paralympics and I think we were a bit worried because we didn't know how disability was necessarily received over in China but um they they took it on board and, and loved it and filled the stadium so uh, yeah I competed there I mean it was mixed feelings on my results there because I think I went in as like an underdog no one really expected much of me like I was quite a a young person on the team with sort of plans for London um and then I managed to put out an awesome heat swim in the 100 meters breaststroke which was one of my main events did like a four second personal best wow. and qualified into the final in second position uh so that was a bit of a shock to the system considering I was like wow if I make a final that'll be a gold medal for me to then do that much of a jump and be that high up the ranking I was like okay this has sort of changed it for me um and I think I kind of psyched myself out of the final uh, we talk a lot about physical preparation but I hadn't really focused on my mental preparation um and when I came back for the final I was completely like full of anxiety loads of stress like did not swim my best best race because I was just too nervous and just putting too much pressure on myself um and that was a really big lesson and I think something as disabled and Paralympic athletes, we hadn't experienced pressure like that because we'd never competed in front of big crowds. Like we never had the promise of competing on home home turf. So suddenly that up to gear when you get a Paralympic Games and you're suddenly becoming one of the favourites, you need to know how to handle that pressure. So that was the big learning from that. Like I knew I was physically in, in great shape and was good enough to win a medal in Beijing, but unfortunately I had to settle for fifth even though there was like half a second between silver and fifth. So all I had to do was repeat my heat swim and I would have won the silver medal. Um, but, you know, things happen for a reason and I had to um, re take take into account that I wasn't quite ready and my nerves and anxiety clearly got the better of me on that occasion. Were you, um, were you expecting to swim such a big PB? I mean, you're always hoping for a personal best when you're a major champ because that's what you've trained for. You know, mainly in swimming, you have two big events that you train into. So usually it's sort of like um, Easter time, you have the trials. So you train into that and you taper and prepare your body for that. And then you go again for a big championship, usually in August or September. So you're, you're expecting yourself to improve. But 
four seconds over 100 meters is a is a huge margin like most of the time you're looking at half a second to a second being a good personal best so I think I was looking at right if I do a personal best I'll make the final um but not if I do a personal best by four seconds I'll be one of the top in the world so that was something I hadn't realized you know what had happened but it's when you get to a champs like that and you suddenly get the adrenaline and everything takes over you you don't know what happens and you don't know how you're going to react and obviously I had both a positive and a negative reaction how did you feel after Beijing? Was it quite easy to sort of refocus on on London then after that? Or yeah, I think if we didn't have London after that, like after any major championships, there was a, a real like dip, and you're sort of okay. And I was at university, and I was going into my second year, so it could have been quite easy to get distracted by student life and just taking a break, but. For most athletes in Great Britain, it was like right. This is this is the start of the next biggest four years of our lives. Um, so, and also, as much as I was frustrated that I didn't get a medal in Beijing, I was massively lifted by the fact that I've just gone to like number two in the world with that time. So, you know, yeah. let's let's turn that into something <laughs> positive. Yeah. So, um, bless you. Um, so yeah, that it, and also we had quite a, two championships the year after, so we already had like another focus to deal with. And swimmers aren't the best at taking breaks. Like I think we get two weeks off in a year, which is ridiculous. And if I had three or four days out of the water, I'd be like, oh, I've lost the feel of the water. Oh, I don't feel as good as I did a week ago. So I think we become a bit obsessed with just constantly being in the pool. I think that goes. Um across the board with athletes doesn't it like if you, if, you, if you take a bit of time away from whatever you're doing you just feel like you're not doing all you can to keep improving which obviously isn't actually the case but as yeah. a, as an athlete in that position you just you all you're thinking about is how can i be the best how can i be the best and yeah. probably doing the trick doing the sport is what you actually take comfort in and makes you feel like you're making improvements even though sometimes obviously you want to be having like active time away um, yeah it is hard to sort of let yourself relax like that. Yeah, I think you can be, you do absolutely become obsessed with your sport uh, and whatever that might be because you just have this niggle in the back of your head of thinking, well, if I'm taking a break, what's my competition doing? You know, are mm. they are they having a day off today? Are they, you know, taking it easy in the gym? Um, and also I was at a time in my sport where swimming didn't really fully embrace cross training at that point. And obviously someone like me who absolutely loved all my other sports and when I was a part of the Great Britain programme, I had to give up all my other sports. Like, it was really frustrating for me to say, okay, can I just take a week off out of the pool and do some gym or do some gym work or do some running or do... And they'd be like, no, no, you might get injured. So that was quite frustrating for me and the fact that swimming was the only thing they really respected as a worthwhile um, form of exercise. And obviously gym and strength conditioning did aid that, but they didn't really see... The benefits of what going off and doing yoga could do or you know just going for a run as an alternative form of aerobic exercise so that's definitely changed now because if you think about it 2008 2009 that was 10 years ago now so I think yeah. that's evolved massively in the fact that to keep an athlete sane or to keep anybody sane doing the same thing over and over again isn't good for them and if you can mix it up I think you keep your, your body on on its toes a little bit um and I think there definitely would have been times when I just thought I don't want to get in the pool today I'd like to do something different even if it was you know uh, similar to the aerobic systems that we'd be using in the pool yeah absolutely and um just from like a, a physiological standpoint um if you've only got you've only, your body's only really got so much volume that it can uh, recover from 
And so if you're giving it volume that you're not really going to try your absolute best or, or not necessarily not try, but you, you're thinking, oh, I don't want to get in the pool today. I would probably yeah. actually get like a little bit more um, high quality work done if I had, if I could go on my bike for an hour. I'd, yeah. really, I'd really enjoy that. And I'd actually try a, a bit harder potentially for that hour. And I would get a little bit more, um, potentially get a little bit more out of that hour session on the bike versus an hour in the pool today. And yeah. allowing yourself to to have those um, different modalities does allow you to then, when you get to go in the pool again, you're like, okay, I'm going to really, really, I'm, I'm quite hungry for this today. I'm going to work because um, I might only get to be in the pool four or five times this week. And I know I've got to make each session count. Yeah, you absolutely got it right there because I think swimming is quite a traditional sport and they're very stuck in their ways at times of this is how it's always been done. Um, whereas I think other sports and it's becoming much more of a thing now that actually cross training is a huge asset to your training program more so for your mental state mm -hmm. but um, I think you can you can address certain weaknesses that you might have through other means and also when you've got injury as well like shoulder problems in swimmers was quite common so me getting back in the pool and just pounding out mileage through that was not worth it so yeah, it was always a bit of a battle to say look I'm, I'm knackered today my shoulders are done in can I go get on the bike and do a session on there it'd always be sort of received with a bit of like well it's not the same it's not the same whereas I think and now it is it's appreciated as a, a really good form of cross training I can imagine that must have made you feel even worse for not getting in the pool when you really didn't want to as well or like like you said about having time off you probably constantly felt like you you shouldn't be doing that if your coaches were constantly telling you that like the pool's where you need to be yeah yeah because you just never get away from it and I think I'm not placing blame anywhere but you know, when you're when I got glandular fever, it was because I got burnt out. And a lot of the time, burnout in swimming comes as a result of you being in a cold environment all the time. You know, you've got wet hair a lot of the time. Training yeah. January, February, like you're getting up at five o'clock in the morning and throwing yourself into a cold pool of water and you're already feeling low. Like swimmers very commonly get sinusitis, colds. And so you getting back in a pool when you've already got like bunged up sinuses is awful. And all you want to do is just go do some exercise somewhere or another, but not in a cold pool because it just throws everything off and it's a horrible feeling. But that, I think that was sort of the vicious circle that I got stuck in at the end is that actually I was the one that was like, oh no, I can't take time out of the pool because I'd become a bit obsessed with this whole London 2012 prospect and you just think, no, I've got to get the mileage in and you get pressure from, you know, the people that are funding you from your governing body because they're expecting training programs that you've done each week. They want to see food diaries. They want to see all of these things from you to prove that you're doing everything that's being asked of you to get your funding, but also to, to be the best in the world. So you're juggling a lot of pressure balls and sometimes you just need to stop and go, is me getting the pool twice a day for four, five hours? really going to improve my performance if I'm feeling absolutely crap um but unfortunately that didn't always get through um but like I said and I, I'm not criticizing the sport anymore because I know it's changed massively and I I was very honest in what I thought probably didn't quite work for me and what did work for me and I think that's definitely helped with learning just in general for the well-being of athletes yeah absolutely it does sound like um there, there's no doubt that when you feel that you're just like constantly almost banging your head against a brick wall telling your coaches, oh, do you know what, is this, is this available? It just gets so frustrating and I do not envy you needing to jump in that pool 
<laughs> it's always like, right, who's going to be brave and do the first jump in? And once you're in, it's not as bad, but it's that 5.30 in the morning. You know, no, the, the venue isn't even open. You have to get yourself in there. It's like Boxing Day. Or it was like, it's that, oh, wow. the worst week was that week between Christmas and New Year when we did not get given time off. We were expected to swim Christmas Eve, Boxing Day, and then the days between. And it's like... Yeah, that's the last place you want to be and I think that's the I really appreciate my Christmas holidays now because uh, they never really existed when I was a swimmer but I feel like I'm being a bit negative about my sport it was amazing um but it's a huge commitment I think swimming is one of the few sports where um your lifestyle is completely evolving around swimming um and you're getting up at silly o'clock in the morning and you're going to bed extremely early so social life and social events don't really exist unless it's with your other swimming friends and you all go out for dinner at five o'clock in the evening because you know you want to be in bed by eight mm-hmm. so um and yeah you just have to learn to juggle yeah that fair. sounds like what me and i do now yeah. <laughs> what is it i about... think that's just old age isn't it <laughs> yeah what is it about swimmers and and swimming in general where everyone has to train so early though like, <laughs> Oh, I'm don't. I have battled with this for years. You just, you're a professional athlete. Just do it at eight or nine. <laughs> yeah, and I would always have that begrudging feeling because at the <laughs> University of Bath, it's like a huge sports training village. And so there were the athletics athletes that were coming in and, you know, we'd be leaving the pool or leaving the venue at 10 o'clock after doing three hours, two hours in the pool and an hour or so in the gym. And they'd be wandering in, yawning, sort of looking a bit half asleep, going for their first session. And I'm like, why have we just done three hours while they're just sort of tootling in at 10, 10 30 and feeling like that was an early start? And I asked this over and over again. And what I found out is that swimming is a non impact sport. Therefore, that is exploited to a degree in that you can fit two sessions in a day. So very rarely as a rugby player would you be doing, you know, rugby training in the morning, you know, out on the pitch, you know, grinding out and tackling and then doing the same thing in the evening because your body would fall apart. Like you can't deal with that much physical brutality. But swimming, because you're not technically putting loads of impact for your joints, you can do two sessions a day and not cause yourself too much physical harm. Um, but what they do is they have to give you enough break in the middle of the day for you to obviously refuel and to recover so they say well you need to be in the pool by six so then you can be out the pool by eight and then you can fit a gym session in and then you've got enough time after that gym session to then recover and get back in the pool at four o'clock to then do a really tough evening session so um it's the good old traditional ways that swimming is is that well there's no impact so you're not going to injure yourself so let's make you do two sessions a day um but we'll have to start early because you need to have more recovery time in the middle of the day so that's pretty much how it worked well, which you can that, tell it really worked well for me yeah. <laughs> it is that is quite an evidence-based uh, approach to <laughs> yeah it is and that, that's sessions, where i think as as I've learned more about the sport, people have become a lot more individual about people. And I have spoken to swimmers since I've retired and they've said, oh, yeah, I don't train. I train eight o'clock in the morning now and I swim from eight till ten. And that is so much more humane. Yeah. Um, and obviously, some some of other people were fitting it in around work. You know, I was studying at university, so I had lectures at nine o'clock. Therefore, mm-hmm. I had to be you know, done by train, done with training by 8.30. So, you know, it, sometimes it is just being able to fit it in around your other other studies and pressures as well so if we sort of 
start fast forwarding a little bit then towards uh, towards London and yeah. starting to you know maybe all that training starting to catch up with you a little bit. Yeah, so um, I went to the World Championships after Beijing in 2009 and won a silver and a bronze medal there. In 2010, I graduated from uni and was like, great to be done with that because that was one stress that I was quite thankful to forget about for a while. But I, I banked that. Like, I always knew I needed to get my university degree sorted because I was not going to be a swimmer forever um, and I needed to have a backup plan. Um, and it was then I decided I'd go full-time training for two two years into London Um I mean, it was sort of the no stone left unturned approach, you know, fully focused for two years into London. Um, and that meant I could just be really doing everything the right way without any excuses. Um, and, and that was, you know, working really well in 2011 at the British Championships. I broke the world record and uh, won all of my events and was pretty much top of the rankings in, in most of my main events. And proving that I was going to be someone to beat in London and was, you know, a real favourite to go to London 2012. Um, so much so that all my family bought tickets and I became a bit of a poster girl in my local area. And I just became the girl that was the swimmer that was going to go to London. Um, and, and with that, you know, there was additional stresses of, oh God, I don't want to let people down. But I think I'd got over that phase from Beijing. I'd got over the mental stresses of being an elite athlete. But as a result, I become so mentally tough that I stopped listening, listening to my body. Um, and, you know, the training I was doing, it wasn't that much more intense, but it, it had a an agenda behind it, which was you've got to go to London 2012. You've got to win. You've got to be the best in the world. And so I just wouldn't stop even when my body was telling me to stop and you know coughs and colds never went away. Tonsillitis, sinusitis, migraines started appearing and. I was aware I wasn't at my best and I was aware that my training was going through a bit of a bad spell, but that's pretty much what I called it a bad spell. You know, everybody has bad training weeks or bad training periods and that's completely human. Um, but for some reason, mine just was ongoing and ongoing. And uh, I sort of hid my way, hid myself away from people that would probably call me out on it. For example, my family and my friends, like I didn't go to family parties or weddings. I barely went home because I knew that they'd hear that I wasn't very well I would pretend to I wouldn't call my mum because I know she'd be able to hear that I wasn't very well so you kind of just become a bit obsessed in this bubble of I've got to go to I've got to go to the, the Paralympic Games I've got to be the best in the world and eventually I was very well in training got taken to hospital and the doctors did some blood tests and that's when they sort of diagnosed me with glandular fever um it, they said I'd probably had it for about six months and had trained through it, which actually was very dangerous because I was on the verge of like chronic fatigue and ME and things like that because swimming is a bit of a brutal sport when it comes to allowing your body to rest. And the doctors pretty much just said, look, you need to take a break. You just need to, to take a step back from training for a while. And this was just a couple of months before the trials for London 2012. And I was like, nah nah like this can't be it like I haven't just spent 10 years of my life devoted to my swimming for someone just to say yeah you're burnt out you, you, you've done yourself in um and so I kind of ignored that and kept my head in the sand and continued training I mean I, I don't think you can really call it training very often my coach would tell me to go home and I'd be like no I, I'm getting in and I'd get in and 
to a terrible couple of lengths and that's when I did have to resort to sitting on a bike in the gym because people wouldn't let me in the pool because they knew that I wasn't in any fit state to be training um so I just sat on the bike in the gym and thought well at least if I can keep my endurance turning over my fitness turning over something might just appear and get me through the races and I went to the trials for London 2012 and I missed out on qualifying by half a second which was it's not you know still is quite a significant margin but if you click your fingers that was the difference between me going and achieving my dream of competing at the Paralympic Games and me pretty much becoming a lost soul that didn't know what to do with herself and you know I, I was very much lost my identity I'd been an athlete for as long as I could remember everybody knew me as the swimmer everyone had already booked their tickets to watch me in London and I just couldn't bring myself to tell people that I wasn't good enough and that I wasn't going um and so that was probably like the toughest toughest time and I absolutely hated swimming at that point I just completely despised all the things that it had sort of done to me and I, I felt like it had just sort of broken me down very sort of slowly and I hadn't really realized uh and so I had to kind of refocus myself a little bit and and find new ways to be motivated and I never lost my love for sport like I always knew that sport was the thing that kept me sane so um I joined my local netball club and I started like running and cycling and doing everything other than swimming but I could only do it like once or twice a week because I was you know still trying to get over the fact that I had glandular fever and was trying to like transition away from being an athlete but that was that was really tough and you know, the, having to admit that I wasn't going to compete at London 2012 was one of the toughest things to have to say to people. Um, but now one of the jobs I do is I'm an athlete mentor. And uh, that was one of the roles that I picked up around London 2012 when they were looking to send athletes into schools and, you know, inspire businesses to support the Paralympics. And um, I think that was a really big healing process for me because I had to tell my story. And, you know, I explained about all the great things I'd done in sport. But then I also had to admit that it didn't go to plan. Um, but that's just the reality of sport, really. I'm sure you guys have experienced highs and lows in your time in training and competing. You know, things don't always go to plan. Um, and it just happened to be that my goal was one of the, you know, most exciting things I could have done, but it just didn't go my way. And I had to turn that into something positive. And luckily, other opportunities came about, you know, whether it was athlete mentoring, but also uh, working for the BBC as a broadcaster. Uh, so I was very lucky that, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time and not afraid to be a bit of a chatterbox, as you can probably <laughs> tell, uh, that, you know, new opportunities came around <laughs> and I could refocus. How, um, who was the first person you told uh, that you didn't make the, like, did, um, you didn't make the team? Well, it was, you get like, um, there's technically a, a two week period after the trials where you, you wait to receive a letter um but I knew I hadn't done the time and I knew that I was an older athlete who was already in a pretty bad way anyway like all of British swimming knew that I wasn't well so the only way they could have taken me is if I had done the time because they were definitely not going to take me knowing that I was probably just going to get worse and I always think there was a bit of a silver lining to the fact that if I had gone to London 2012 and continued training in the state that I was in I could have done a huge amount of damage to my body. Mm. Like I still feel slightly compromised at times. Like I definitely can't go back to the elite training that I used to, 
but I could have been so much more serious. You know, I could have got chronic fatigue or ME and things like that. So um, they were aware that if I didn't do the time, they couldn't take me. And um, I, I, I recall walking up to, to see them at the end of the competition and uh, was just like, right, I'm just going to have to go up and say thank you because, you know, they, they've worked with me for the last 10 years. And, you know, I'm, I'm not the sort of person to leave bitter because, you know, when you don't get selected for a team, there's usually a lot of negativity around that whereas I knew fair and square that I wasn't going to go and it was everyone was in tears like the whole of the coaching team were in tears the performance director and I was like oh okay that was quite like reassuring to me that you know I was somebody on that team I may have not won a Paralympic medal I may have not been the greatest athlete on that team but I, I brought something different you know I was always the one of the cheerleaders I was always one with full of energy and, and always being positive on camp so I felt like actually I might not be there as a competitor, but I'd definitely be there in spirit. Um, and it was when I was driving home with my dad and like, my parents are really good at just knowing they, I don't want to talk about swimming. Like you get some family and friends that love talking to you about sport. And I was like, look, once I've finished, I don't want to talk about it. And we just got in the car and he goes, should we go to, should we go to McDonald's? And I was like, yeah. And bearing in mind, my dad is a farmer and he doesn't like McDonald's. So for him to suddenly realise actually all she needs is some greasy fat food right now, fast food right now, was all that I needed. And um, yeah, the first time I ever said aloud that I wasn't going to London 2012 was uh, a school awards evening, <laughs> uh, which was a bit of a stupid time to say it because I probably should have practiced beforehand. But I suddenly got asked to do this sort of awards evening um, and pretty much had to admit that I wasn't going to London. And I got a standing ovation, which was lovely. Um, and the, the really like, great part about it is there was another guy at that event who competed in the like 1958 um uh, 1958 uh, games and he was even there like accepting it and stuff so I was like okay I've got his acceptance I've got his respect so you know I think I can move forward from this positively so yeah it was crazy old time to be honest, I want to give you a standing ovation right now. Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Honestly, that, um, the whole story is like is so touching, yeah. and it sort of brings a tear to my eye. To be fair, it yeah, sounds... it's it's the brutal world of sport, yeah, really, yeah. isn't it? And there's a lot of people out there, and I have a whole respect for athletes that almost made it because they train just as hard, mm -hmm. yeah. they work just as hard. They just happened to either have timing wasn't on their side. For example, they peaked in the wrong season injury got the better of them illness got the better of them or it just didn't work out with them on the day like mm. so often it's like you get one day one event to qualify and if you happen to be having an off day that's it yeah, like yeah. there's no other way and I think you know we can praise the amazing athletes that have won golds and medals at the highest level but there's a whole world of other athletes out there that you know still deserve a huge amount of admiration for what they did yeah I think it's I suppose it's like it's absolutely savage, but it's what makes sport so amazing. Like all yeah. sports, yeah. it makes all those success stories even more incredible. And yeah, is and they can you know not every story in sport can be positive, I guess. And sport wouldn't no. be what it was if if it didn't have all those like horrendous lows and like heart wrenching stories associated with it as well. Yeah, like I work in um, media now, so I work for the BBC as a sports reporter and um, I now follow Paralympic sport and the ironic thing is, is I'm always looking for that story where there's been huge heartbreak and then amazing highs and then they got their legs blown off doing this or they were run over by a you know motorbike or whatever because you, you know that that 
those those stories resonate with people and can kind of just go what they've been through all that and they're still able to go on and compete for their country so quite strangely I've now I like to go for the big heavy stories because I know a lot of them are out there um it's particularly in the world of Paralympic sport and I think those people deserve to be role models more so than other athletes that maybe aren't great representations of what we should be aspiring to be like so um I I'm, I really love my job now because I technically I'm still on the the athlete circuit. I'm as close as I can get to being in the sport without having to do the training and the ridiculous hours of work. So um, I feel quite lucky that as a result of a real low point in my life of not competing in London, I got the opportunity to to cover the event as a, a broadcaster and for Five Live. And then that triggered all sorts of work opportunities off the back of that. So yeah, um, I, yeah I, I sort of had a bit of a, a luck, lucky streak that I've just managed to turn into a, to a career. And, and that's, again, another fear for athletes. A lot of them fear retirement um, when you've been sort of in this world of being an athlete for however many years. That reality of suddenly having to get a real job um, always looms. Uh, and I just was lucky enough that because I got out of the sport a little bit earlier, not by choice, I mean, I would have loved to have continued on, um, I was then provided with quite a lot of work opportunities that I hadn't even really considered um, and they still are my jobs to this day and you know I hope to go to Tokyo next year to cover the Paralympics and I've just been covering like the likes of Netball World Cup or Cycling World Championships and and for someone who absolutely loves sport I get to cover it for a living and that's that's pretty awesome. Yeah that is amazing to be fair what was it um your first time going live on the BBC what was that like versus uh, competing? exactly the same like and that's why I think I loved it because the day um so I got to uh to London 2012 and was working with Five Live and a bit like the start of a race like you get take your marks go well at the start of a live broadcast you get someone in your ear going okay in five four three and then so you still get that same like buzz of okay I've now got to perform under pressure I've got to deliver because it, it's, it's happening right now and I think that's why my transition out of sport and into work has been a lot easier than most because I've been able to fill that void I feel that um sort of want for competitiveness and adrenaline and you know as all athletes are we all want to know where the next big kick's coming from or where the exciting moment is going to come from and I tell you working in live tv it happens a lot um, <laughs> and more often than not you look like a bit of a fool but you know I cried on that like, last national radio like because it was you know watching some of my best friends win medals and some of that was from you know my own disappointment of not being there but more of it was about seeing the fact that Paralympic sport was being covered yeah. and people were watching it and inspired by it and appreciating that they are just as tough as any other athlete. Absolutely. Definitely. You have to start yeah. singing now, can't you? <laughs> oh, God, was that the awkward pause? Um, oh, no, Come on, on the spot. What am I going to do? I was gonna st- I've, I've got one. What's the one with all the animals in? can't remember. Is this one? Oh, no, is that the one that Tom Hamilton sang? <laughs> <laughs> is it? That'd be great, Do you know there's one about all the animals like, oh, I'm, I can't even remember now. Oh, yeah. Cauliflower's fluffy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go back to my trusty, trusty one at the start. Oh, do you need it again? No, uh, no, no. Cauliflower's fluffy. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. You might just keep that for a peep. Yeah. No, please don't. The it's the most awful song to that sing in tune. That might be the new intro to the Hybrid Coaching podcast. Is yeah, I think that's just, just j- jingles of Kate singing. Yeah. yeah. 
felt like, if only I, would Steph did warn me that you were going to throw very random things at me, and I was tempted to just say, let me know what those random things might no. be. And I think, no, that, that loses you, the uh, sort of the spontaneous uh, uh, have, uh, reaction. <laughs> do you have a favourite dinosaur by any chance, Kate? Um, I think I would have to say the Tyrannosaurus Rex. I know that's really boring, but it's because it's got little claws, which reminds me a little bit like my little stump. Um, just because actually their legs are where all the power is, and that's exactly like me as an athlete. My legs are my power. <laughs> Powerhouse. Yeah. I, I wish I had a tail as well, but that's not the case. How so cool would it be, be having a tail? I think that'd be cheating in the swimming pool. Wouldn't yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. I also you feel know, like that would kind of move into the Super Olympics. Yeah. Because yeah. you're not disabled and you're not normal in inverted commas, um, and you're yeah, you're superhuman. Some humans are actually born with uh, an extra long tailbone. Uh, as a <laughs> essentially like a an old genetic physicist, um, as an old it, it's sort of proof of evolution. So sometimes like uh, uh, the genes kind of go wrong a little bit, and something that used to be uh, the case, i.e., when we were um, monkeys and we had a longer tail, a longer tailbone is produced. Oh, so we've all got a slight tail somewhere. I've got quite a long body. Some humans, and it's quite rare, are actually born with like a tailbone that is actually quite long and kind of a bit like a tail. Well, it actually protrudes. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. Can they wag their tails? I don't don't know if they've got any control over it, (laughs) but like it actually is like an extra long um, wag. Yeah. (laughs) Or just like. Pick stuff up with and what does your um training uh consist of now, Kate? <laughs> um, not what it used to. Um, <laughs> I think so that's probably for the best, I, though. <laughs> I now uh, play netball, so um, I train once a week with my netball club and then we play matches at the weekend. Um, I cycle quite a bit, so. Um, I like to try and fit in a cycle now and then, although I'm very much a fair weather cyclist. Um, I like to play tennis. Like my family are all quite like sporty people, so we all like to play tennis. Um, and I think the easiest thing I do is just like hit sessions, like because I'm travelling all over the world and all over the country. I have no routine, and I would absolutely love to be able to commit to, you know, three times a week at my local gym doing X, Y, and Z. But it just doesn't happen like that, and I think that's that's been a real frustration for me since retiring from sport is that I, I never do the same thing twice. All of my weeks are very different. So it's really hard to keep that consistent sort of fitness up. Um, but I, I do like just sort of doing anything between 10 minutes and 45 minute sort of hit sessions, just in the hotel room, downstairs in the living room, out in the garden when it's a day like today and it's lovely and sunny. Um, Cause I think it's, I, I'm, I'm like definitely a speed athlete. I don't like long, distance I don't like things that take forever I like immediate reaction Mm. um and I do feel quite guilty in the fact that I seem to have been able to retain muscle and um fitness quite well since I've retired from sports so like I could quite easily go for a, a 10k run without too much training behind me I could you know, go and play a netball match without too much um, additional training. So, um, yeah, I think I, I feel quite lucky, lucky for that. And I didn't suddenly get really, really fat when I stopped swimming, which was always a fear because it's like the standard thing. You've been eating like a like a crazy person for 10 years and suddenly you're doing nothing. The the natural thing is to, to, to gain a little bit of weight, but um, I managed to to keep that at bay and uh, sort of found my new, my new normal, which does not 
entail eating saucepans of carbohydrates and loaves of bread as I used to do. <laughs> did you, um, you watching Ali? <laughs> <laughs> did you have to make a concerted effort to sort of stop eating, or did you find that you like you'd been making a concerted effort to eat before? Oh no, I, I ha- definitely had to make a concerted effort because your stomach is still expecting to have that amount of food, and I think like when you're an athlete, your stomach, stomach is stretched. Um, and your metabolism is used to eating that amount of food and then burning it off. And so, you know, I could quite happily go for an evening meal and have a three-course meal and still go home and have, you know, a couple of pieces of toast before I go to bed. Um, and it's just that like this constant cycle of food. Whereas now, like, I've managed to shrink my stomach down to a point where, you know, just one one meal in the evening is enough, not three. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I eat much like smaller portions now and it's more um across the day rather than in breakfast lunch and dinner um and i think that's just sort of learning learning sort of what your what your uh, stomach requires i mean i did go on some silly like lose weight for for my wedding a few months ago which was shrunk my stomach to a degree but then i went on you know my mini moon afterwards and soon got rid of that so i'm definitely back to normal eating now well congratulations on getting married so oh thank you yeah that was a one life event to get ticked off which i was slightly concerned would never come about so i managed to find someone that was willing to put up with me they definitely wouldn't have loved me as a swimmer like i was a horrible person when i was an athlete it's only since i've retired but i think i've become a bit more manageable <laughs> that doesn't sound true no <laughs> you're based on what you're saying about um uh your coverage of london like you couldn't have changed like that you I think you've been a lovely person ever since you were born kate oh thank you you know the time you've been spent talking to me for an hour you've you realized that yeah, this is a perfectly manicured thing she's got going for like broadcasting Ellie. oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> i reckon she's an absolute bitch no, because, the scenes, no, because i am yeah, on a bad day no, I'm I, not don't, I, don't think I, do, I don't think she broadcasts for an hour and 10 minutes that's true so no i don't actually when i'm doing sports news away. it's over in a couple of minutes yeah <laughs> well, i'm just very conscious on time kate so um because we've taken up quite a lot of your afternoon already, which we very, very much appreciate. That's all right. No, I've enjoyed it. I mean, you can tell I have no issues with just chatting. Um, no, I feel like I don't know oh, anything think, about you I guys, like though. Could, so quickly um... tell me about you before I go. No problem oh, at all. Fun fact, fun fact. TMT, fun fact. Um, I've got a video game character on Rugby League Live 2. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> really? Yes, really. I, um, How random! I know it's. I've not actually played the game. It looks pretty terrible, to be honest. But <laughs> yeah, Do my you past life. Fact? Um, not a fun fact, but I would be very remiss. Of, it would be very remiss of me, especially given the topic of today's podcast, not to say a massive congratulations to my mate who qualified for uh, the Paralympics in Tokyo. <gasps> oh, um, who's that? Ben Pritchard. He is a, uh, I think classification is PR1, uh, like single skulls. He, amazing, in, in canoeing. Uh, he rode That's a 22nd PB at the World Championships. <gasps> amazing, so that was like two weeks ago at the World Champs. Uh, yeah, I think it was it was just a week or so ago. What oh, awesome. That's really, yeah, yeah. oh, I'll look out for them. Thank you, research, done then. It's <laughs> worth talking to you guys. on the podcast as well. well if, so. if you like, you could, um, we could come and um, broadcast that one for the BBC. Yeah. <laughs> oh, maybe yeah. we could have you both on the podcast and you could interview him. Yeah, I feel oh, there's wow. definitely an opportunity here to fully embrace all of our experiences. That would be excellent. <laughs> yeah. 
So massive congratulations, Ben. Yeah, awesome. What was his name? Pritchard. Yeah, Ben Pritchard. Ben Pritchard. Amazing it does sound familiar. Yeah. Ali, fun fact? Uh, fun fact, I'm a retired mathematician. Oh, really? Why did you retire? It's too, too ice, but it's a bit like why you retired from swimming. Burnout. <laughs> you almost gave Number yourself burnout. banjo fever from doing maths too much. <laughs> Ali's actually also decided I do believe decided it. That, um, I can see it. He's, he'd need to be paid an extra 10 grand on top of what his normal salary would be just to wear a suit every day. Yeah. <laughs> I think it'd have to be more than that. Well, no, I, no, no, no. It would, um, I can't, yeah, it would have to be. I have to get paid. If someone said to me, um, you got to wear a suit from nine till five on Friday, <laughs> I would literally need to be paid, an, yeah, an extra 10 grand a year minimum. Because it would be so yeah. hard. Imagine that. Wearing a suit every day. Get Unless you have to travel on the tube as well. How much do you have to be paid for oh, that? Oh, actually, no. it's, oh, even, it's awful, not even until five, is it? Because you don't just put it on when you get to work. <laughs> yeah. you got to put it on in the morning. <laughs> that is hard work. They should be rewarded for that. Yeah. Should be <laughs> written into their contracts. I'll only wear yeah. a suit if. I feel like I know you guys so much better now. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. Um, a retired mathematician will wear a suit for a price. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that'd be a good, uh, good Insta bio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we have probably taken up too much of your time, but thank you so so much, Kate. That's been yeah, thank you so much, fun Kate. Thank that. you ever so much. And, um, it's been fun, and I've never been on a podcast where I've had to uh, sing a hymn aloud, um, and I really feel like I could have done better. So, <laughs> well, you I, did a phenomenal job. Well, you have to come back on again, and you yeah. can sing the whole the whole the whole hymn. show will be me just singing. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that'd, that'd be, be great. Yeah. <laughs> we, we might make it a new feature. So yeah, yeah, definitely. We won't ask guests to. We won't ask the new guests to sing hymns. We'll just get a pre-recorded one sent in from you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and open the show with it. And it's day, been fun. And Thanks very much, guys. And uh, yeah, loving your work. Keep it up. Thank, Thank you very, very much. much. Where, excellent day, Kate. Where can where can people find ah. you? Oh, so I'm well. Not I'm not a life. big social <laughs> yeah. media don't, user. Don't I know that's a bit a bit unusual for this time of our lives but you can follow me on instagram and twitter um i think it's like at kate gray g-r-e-y it's not my new married surname i haven't changed it yet but i think i might come up as kate ager just to confuse matters um mm. so i'm in this sort of quite lost space at the moment where i haven't transitioned into my new surname i'm still using my old one but yeah i've still given my new surname to social media so yeah good luck with that um, <laughs> it's a way to boost your followers, isn't it? Well, we'll, um, we'll, we'll find you, and then we'll um, we will provide we'll a link you. in the uh, bio of the podcast. Yeah, cool, awesome, perfect. Bye, Kate. Have a lovely Bye, guys. Bye, bye.